This episode features recordings from our most recent meetup in Los Angeles. The first speaker is Kyle Polish, who is the host of Data Skeptic. Data Skeptic is a podcast about machine learning, data science, and how software affects our lives. Kyle is one of the best explainers for machine learning concepts that I've met, and for this episode, he presented some material that's perfect for this audience. It's a discussion of machine learning for software engineers. The second speaker of this meetup was from Second Spectrum. Second Spectrum is a company that analyzes data from professional sports, turning that data into visualizations, reports, and futuristic sports viewing experiences. We had a previous show about Second Spectrum where we went into the company in detail. It was an excellent show, and I wanted to have Kevin Squire, an engineer from Second Spectrum, to come on this meetup and talk about how the company build machine learning models, and tools to analyze sports data. If you haven't seen any of the visualizations from Second Spectrum, stop what you're doing right now, watch a video on it, it's incredible. This year we had three Software Engineering Daily meetups so far in New York, Boston, and Los Angeles, and at each of these meetups, the listeners of the community got to know each other and talk about software. I was really happy to be in attendance at each of these, and I'm posting the talks given by our presenters the audio quality, the experience of listening to these meetup talks is obviously not as well produced as the controlled experience that I have in the one-on-one interviews, but there are also no ads, and these talks are fantastic. So I hope you enjoy hearing from Kyle and from Kevin. Thank you to Telesign for graciously providing a space and some delicious food for this meetup. Telesign has beautiful offices in Los Angeles, and they make SMS, voice, and data solutions. If you're looking for secure and reliable communications APIs, check out Telesign. Also, if you're looking for a job in Los Angeles, definitely check out Telesign. They have some very nice offices. We'd love to have you as part of our community. We're going to have more meetups over time, and you can be notified of these by signing up to our newsletter or going to softwareengineeringdaily.com meetup. You can also come to softwaredaily.com and get involved in the discussions of our episodes and software projects. And with that, let's get to this episode. When Jeff asked me to come talk, I thought, well, you know, I'm really a data scientist and there's a lot of overlap with software engineers that I knew would be here tonight. But I was trying to think, where's the middle ground or what can be interesting Machine learning is becoming so much more democratized, still takes a certain practitioner for certain areas, but I know probably everyone in this room who writes code has dabbled in it at least. So I wanted to share a few thoughts on where I think machine learning is going. Uh, Might be of interest to you if you want to start dabbling in it yourself. Maybe if you're already a practitioner, you'll agree or disagree with some of my thoughts. And why not throw in some blockchain, because that seems to be a hot topic on software engineering daily these days. So my outline, I'll give you a kind of very brief history and overview. I assume probably everyone already knows about machine learning at some level, so I'm not going to make it too basic. But what I really wanted to get into is a, a few obvious directions about where machine learning is going and maybe a few theoretical ones that uh, could be interesting. So again, I knew I'd hit a bunch of software engineers, so this is the way I wanted to find machine learning for you guys. Give it different to an audience of CEOs, but three simple lines. Why do the teams take so long to build models? Looks really easy, right? A lot of magic happens in not only your loading step, but also in the labeling of data. But 
for the most part, that is realistically three lines of code that might build you your model. Under the hood, a tremendous amount of other things are happening. For the most part, we can think of machine learning as a black box, that uh, data comes in from your database, from S3, from who knows where. You give it some project and out pops some answer. So from a you know, engineer's point of view, it's a prediction, a classification, something like that. Business owners, product owners are going to care, well, how do I know it's correct? How do I know it's not biased and all that sort of things? But if you're the integrator, the question is, you know, how do I get the data it needs and where do I store its output? And for any business people in the room, here's the way you can think of it too. So machine learning has benefited from and will continue to benefit. How do we take this thing and make it better? Well, we want to push it to the limits in every possible way. You know, the first transistor was big and bulky and expensive and all that sort of stuff. And we progressively pushed that so small that we can't even really see them anymore. Faster compute will make it possible to compute models faster. Parallelization will allow us to compute models on larger data sets, which has been profoundly successful. More data and specifically better data will get you better models and better results. Feature engineering is one of the keys to all of machine learning. Just thinking that you can throw all your data into a bucket and something magic comes out, well, that does happen sometimes, but rarely does that actually work. Usually some amount of work has to be done by someone who understands the algorithm and figures out how to feed it the data with just the right flavor and whatnot. And we're entering an era when these concepts like transfer learning are becoming very popular. Transfer learning is the idea that you see in computer vision a lot, where very smart people built vision algorithms that could recognize that something's a chair or a table or things like that. But rarely would that same algorithm that a person built for general purposes be able to say that's an IKEA table or that's a Model X table or whatever the case may be. Yet inside of the neural network that does that is a lot of information content that can be repurposed. So transfer learning is a technique for saying, let me borrow that as a starting point and extend it. And it allows people who don't have that depth of experience in computer vision to maybe custom tailor and get a head start on things. That's another way we're pushing this stuff to the limits because to really get deep into some of those spaces, you might have to be a domain expert. But there are tools today where a software engineer who knows very little about machine learning could apply that technique and build some interesting classification results. The hot dog, not hot dog is a kind of a nice example of that. <laughs> there will be new algorithmic approaches, but honestly, that maybe excites me the least. What seems to make data science and machine learning push forward is more about the quality and breadth of your data than the fanciest of algorithm you use. And a topic I won't cover today, but it's something that's important as we push machine learning to the limits is interpretability. Models today are becoming so complicated, people don't actually know how they're working, deep learning especially. There are tools and techniques, things like the LIME system that'll help us get some interpretability. But in the same way, you know, I can ask you a question and you can give me an answer, but I'm never sure if you're you know, trying to get something over on me, maybe, I don't know. At some point, we're gonna have to give up on perfect interpretability of machine learning, but uh, that's a topic for another day. This is the perfect example you never encounter of what machine learning is. Your data is on one dimension here, your x-axis. On the left axis, the output you're looking for, your model's the red line, perfectly, or does a pretty good job predicting that data. Rarely do you get this. Usually you get something like this. So data is often has these nonlinear relationships. This is a challenge because the plain vanilla techniques that are good at the thing on the left here don't generalize well. When you assume data is linear, as many things do, you're going to end up with models that don't quite fit your data. And I can assure you, real world data always looks like the right, if you're lucky, almost never looks like the left. 
We can tackle this in a number of ways. We can try and transform the data, make it linear. We can come up with algorithms that are better at handling nonlinear data. So this isn't the death knell in any respect, in any uh, sense of the word, but data is often nonlinear. That's one of the challenges we face in machine learning. Another challenge we face is that data is often highly dimensional. So think of something like uh, on Amazon when they're doing product reviews. You know, you buy a lot of products, but they have millions of products and millions of users, this very sparse matrix that you can never fit into memory. And uh, if you try to solve it with vanilla machine learning techniques, you're not likely to get anywhere useful. On the left here is an example of the MNIST data set. It's a handwritten digit recognition corpus where you literally represent that uh, image as a, I guess, 16 by 16, 256 featured vector and uh, intensities being the pixel colors. And that's how we do a lot of machine learning on images. Text the old fashioned way was every single word in the document and its frequency was a feature. That's gone out of fashion and things like word embeddings and word to vec have really taken things leaps and bounds forward there. Ways of fighting highly dimensional data, but this is another one of the problems machine learning people face. Feature engineering is expensive and hard. So can we automate it? That's the dream of deep learning. Doesn't apply to every scenario, but this is a diagram from a research paper about computer vision where in the same way I was showing you here that this image becomes just this sort of bitmap, we can apply the same kind of thing to photos and traditional machine learning, logistic regression, random forest, you just give it these photos, it'll never converge to being able to predict something useful from it, or at least doesn't seem like it would in any reasonable amount of time. But if you introduce these intermediary layers, that's the deep in the deep learning, the hope is that at each layer, they're all learning something useful. So uh, if I told you, I'm gonna give you a data set, a CSV file, and it's gonna tell you if an image has a face in it, yes or no, if it has two eyeballs in it, yes or no, you could probably very quickly come up with a rule-based system that's simple, that would say, is this a face or a chair or whatever the case may be. Data sets like that don't exist. We have raw image data. At the other end of it, I think everybody in this room could come up with a clever way of detecting edges somehow in an image, you know, where things transition from high contrast to low contrast, black to white, whatever the case may be. And you could hard code all these things, and that's what people tried to do for a long time until eventually people said, give up on that. Let's just let the machine figure it out for us. And the magic that is deep learning figures out these intermediary representations at each level where these edges and little swirly things are detected and from those are composed shapes and from the shapes are composed elements of faces and from that we get to recovery of the original faces there. And all that's automated. Data is big, this is a challenge. And it's somewhat of a solved challenge today through data parallelism, techniques like Hadoop and uh, Spark just spinning up a thousand little cluster if you can afford it and feel like it somewhere. Even though big data is still a challenge, and I don't mean to undermine the amount of work that goes into managing it, it's a problem that is solvable, but amongst these uh, problems that machine learning practitioners face. One that isn't quite as solvable, although we've got some good tools out there, is that data happens in real time. The traditional machine learning uh, part practitioner would go and collect a massive training set, build their model, and then somehow figure out a way to give that model to an engineer and get it to production. Today, things shift radically, and streaming technologies are becoming more prevalent. Spark's one of my favorites. There's plenty of other ones I could have listed as well. Serverless kind of plays a role in this and how elastic can be at managing data. And interesting algorithmic techniques like the two I visualized here, that's a bloom filter and a uh, count min sketch here. These are probabilistic data structures that take up a very small amount of memory and in that compromise by not giving it a big amount of memory you have to accept maybe not perfect accuracy. 
So a bloom filter, for example, if you give it objects that you've hashed and then say, hey, have I seen this object before? It can always tell you yes confidently, but it'll sometimes make some false positives. Or I might have that one backwards. But either way, you can insert the negative of the hash and do the same thing. So with very small amounts of memory, a stream of data can be processed. And with just a little compromise on perfect accuracy, you can manage streaming data a little bit better for many scenarios. So data is real time is still a big challenge, but there are some techniques and methods out there to help us deal with it. So where is machine learning going to go next? You know, there are some of these problems and maybe some solutions for it. Certainly it's going to go on to mobile devices. There's a lot of work going into how we deploy that deep learning technology so that the image recognition you do today, which might take a picture, send it to the cloud and get the answer back, perhaps that should run on the device itself. Um, robotics is a big component of this. Self-driving cars, obviously. The tooling for machine learning continues to evolve and get better to the point where people who don't understand machine learning in some applications can use the tools out of box for good effect. So where are we going? Many directions, of course. One thing I think a lot about is how models are really hard to build, but easy to copy. And I kind of compare this to pharmaceuticals. You know, it takes a lot of money to develop a drug, to test it, to get FDA approval, all that kind of stuff. But out of it comes a chemical diagram you could write on a napkin. And probably a chemistry undergraduate could reverse engineer with basic lab equipment. So if there weren't, uh, I'm not a fan of software patents, although, you know, teach their own on that. I am sort of a fan of medical patents because there's no incentive to develop a new drug if someone can steal it in a second and then uh, the millions you invested is just gone. That's not to say that the industry works perfectly or there are no problems there, it's just that the same challenge is analogous in model building. You don't want to give someone your model because you invested a lot in creating it, so can you protect that in some way? Now the obvious answer I'm sure a lot of engineers have already figured out is of course, make it a service. Send me a REST request, I'll never give you your, the model, I'll just give you the answer, you pay me whatever per use. And that's a nice solution, except for the results um, of this gentleman, Florian Tremere, that I interviewed on Data Skeptic last year about stealing machine learning models from the cloud. And the moral to this story, if you want the technical details, I'd refer you to his paper or to our episode, is without too much effort, you can steal a cloud API. Now, if that cloud API is streaming in real time and that kind of thing, it, there could be some added challenges there, but a static sort of model, it can be extracted and someone can take that asset you think you have protected behind your little REST service. Data is the new oil, everyone's heard that term. Federating that data is key to success. A lot of companies uh, have what I like to refer to as the unfair advantage. Gmail pretty much solved spam. How did they do that? They became the best email client and they got the majority of the users to use their email. So they saw all the spam coming in. Our gracious host today, Telesign, they have an unfair advantage in their phone intelligence products. The more clients they add, the more data they see, and each of the individual clients couldn't provide the same intelligence because they don't see the world of opportunities that this company sees. Steam, just to throw a random one in, the video game company, if you develop an app, you can put some cool analytics in it, put in some tracking and stuff, and you'll know about your users, but how do your users compare to other games? Is yours gonna take off or not? You have no idea, but Steam really knows already if they wanna study it. Waze is probably the best example yet. They got just enough people to be on that app and all your GPS is sending back data, so they have probably the best traffic because it's, there's, you are all their real-time sensors deployed to the streets. And I assume everyone probably enjoys opting into that. There might be a way to block your data or you could do something to not let Waze get it, but why would you? When we all contribute our data there, we all have better images of the street. I think I got one more. Oh, that's weird. I don't know how that happened, but 
got redacted somehow. Anyway, you know, Cambridge Analytica's in the news, so a minute ago I was like, yeah, give your data to Waze. That makes sense, right? And I, I think it probably does, because it's sort of benign. I, maybe I don't want Waze tracking what grocery stores I shop at and whatnot. Maybe I'm talking myself out of it. But we all have this issue now of data is good to share. Data is powerful to federate. But the world's going to change. And how can we deal with that? So a bit on opting in and opting out. This is a sentiment I'm hearing a lot more. I don't want my data in your model. And most of us don't have a choice. Uh, or I guess you could run your own email server. That gets you out of Gmail. You could run your own everything. And at some point, all you're doing is running your own things. You're never getting anything done. We will need to find some middle ground. Another option is like, I would like to, in some cases, anonymously be included in your model. Let's say someone called me and, and said, Kyle, you know, we know your family history. I'm calling you from this hospital research organization. Your family has a certain history. Will you give us a blood sample? And I would love to, if my blood could in some way contribute to medical advancement, especially in, in things that my family suffered from, how wonderful would that be? I'd love to give it with the understanding that it's anonymous and all that, and not that that company who took my blood is going to IPO and be sold to some other place, and then suddenly someone wants to raise my insurance rates because they looked at this blood sample and what's included in it. So. Can I give you my data anonymously? I mean, you can promise me it's anonymous, but who knows what really happens or what one rogue employee could decide to do if they have a little bit too much access. You know, and I, I want my data included in your model, but maybe I want something back. Maybe I should say, hey, Waze, you've got to pay me a penny a day or something like that. Lots of options and ways we can look at this, and I want to present one that's uh, becoming a little bit more popular. Oh, before I get into that, a couple other ideas on privacy, just some interesting notes. This is a technique long known in the market research space. Here's a survey I might ask some of you to take. And uh, what I really need to do is give this presentation again, where I ask a different audience to do the same thing. So everybody think, of those three options, I don't care which ones, just tell me your number, 0, 1, 2, or 3. And I could collect that data and I could take the average. Maybe the average for the room is like 1.5 is the number everyone reports back. Okay, so then half my uh, group in an A-B test, I give them what they think is the same survey, but this is the survey. I've included one new option drove while intoxicated, which I hope no one has done. Uh, and I expect those that have are not readily uh, willing to admit it. But uh, if, if you were such a person and you're asked to give this number, you probably count it. And you know, if you say your number's three, maybe I just assume you did the other three options. Or your number's two and you're even more kind of anonymized. But if I take the average of this group minus the average of that group, I know exactly how many drunk drivers are in the audience. I don't know who they are, but I have the number, assuming people answer these honestly. So there are interesting methodological techniques that can give us anonymity, and I want to see more things like this used. Not that that's software engineer's responsibility, but uh, interesting technique nonetheless. Anonymity through averaging makes a lot of sense, although there's one guy there with a yellow shirt, so he's not quite so anonymous as everybody else. A couple quick side notes uh, that are of interest here and maybe along the lines of privacy, but also somewhat impractical, included for completion. Wonderful topic, uh, interactive zero-knowledge proof systems. This is a way in which uh, I could claim, hey, I have a way of solving a problem, like the traveling salesman problem. But I don't want to show you how I do it because that's my secret sauce. If I had that, that would mean that I have proven that P equals NP, and I definitely want to protect that because I can make a lot of money if that were true and if I was the one who solved it. So through zero-knowledge proof systems, you can submit to me examples. And through a bit of trickery I won't get in, go into here, I can prove to you that I have the answer without you being able to know what the answer is. 
So on paper, that sounds really awesome, right? That I can give you the data, but you can never know how I came up with the answer. The limitation there is that it really applies to some very specific use cases, mostly to NP-complete problems or P-space-complete problems or stuff like that. So while this is interesting, I don't think this is the solution to our privacy debate. I base that also on the fact that I just checked the proceedings for the upcoming Computational Complexity Conference down in San Diego this year, which just came out this week, and there is precisely one paper on proof systems. And while it looks like a cool paper, I wouldn't call this some breakthrough thing. So complexity theorists are not really pushing interactive proof systems forward. There are just some academic barriers there. Either we're not investing enough in that research, or we're not making the breakthroughs in the same way. No one's making too much progress on P versus NP. So while this is interesting, I don't know that it's our solution. Can we do better? Users wish to keep their data private, but they, we could all benefit from trained models. We benefit from ways. We don't want it to go away. Yet data is necessary to make machine learning models useful. And the creators of those machine learning models, they want to keep the data private. They don't want someone else getting the model that they've created and invested in. And also, you as individuals, you probably don't want your data that was in the training set to be included. In the same way, I might give my data to that medical research, but I don't want it being passed along anywhere else. The owner of that data can leak it, can get hacked, can get acquired, whatever the case may be. So do we have any options at all? Another one that comes up that probably some of you are at least a little bit familiar with is homomorphic encryption. It's the idea that computation can be done on encrypted data, useful computation, and that the result is an encrypted thing. So let's break that down a little bit. Let's say uh, you had some really awesome procedure for doing something to data, and I wanted you to give me that service. I can send you encrypted data, maybe a zip file with a password. But in order for you to do anything with it, you have to unzip it, and now you have the raw data. Maybe you're a careful person, you zip it back up, you re-encrypt it, you send it back. So that's good as long as we follow all the procedures well. But ultimately, you saw my real data. Maybe I could avoid that. And that's the dream of homomorphic encryption, that I would pass you this encrypted data. You would do all your processing on it. You could even keep your algorithms private. You send me back an encrypted result, and I get to decrypt it and look at it. On paper, it sounds great. And there is progress being made in this area, but it's overall very early. And what we don't know is if we'll ever have a fully homomorphic encryption system without limitations. Every single one that's out there today has some limit that sort of makes it impractical. There's always a gotcha. You have to be able to do as many addition and multiplication operations to do fully homomorphic encryption. That's as simple as it is, adding and multiplying in an encrypted form. But we don't have a system that does both. We have systems that can do homomorphic encryption only with addition or only with multiplication, but then they're not Turing complete. We can't solve any open problem. There are some, like there's one, I think it's this Palier that I mentioned here where it can do as many additions as you want and one multiplication. I'm not even clear on how that works, but that's the limit. So imagine if I said you could write a bunch of if statements, but no else statements. Actually, you could do that. So that doesn't, that's not a great example, but this is early stage stuff. We're making progress, but it's not readily available. And most of all, it's computationally expensive. So blockchain has to be the answer, right? Well, what are the benefits of blockchain? And, and I'm sure if uh, there's any enthusiasts in the crowd, I might have trouble getting past this slide if they want to add about a thousand other bullets. But as best I can tell, this is really the, the real six when you break it down. I'll return to these in a moment. Benefits of blockchain-based machine learning. So you remember earlier where I said what machine learning could benefit from. Faster compute, parallelization, more data, these sorts of things. Let's try and marry these together a little bit. Decentralized is not something that the blockchain needs to give to machine learning. We already have it. 
Immutability is something machine learning doesn't necessarily benefit from. High availability, yes, but we already have it. Uh, highly secure, well, that one's interesting, yes. We do have secure machine learning today in just the form we transfer everything over SSL. Uh, it does have to be decrypted somewhere, so we could say that's insecure. Maybe I shouldn't have grayed out high security. But it's not the most profound thing we want to do because, for the most part, if you're building a model, you can secure your own data. The shared ledger is interesting because we can share our data. Transparency and trust is certainly there, uh, which kind of goes hand in hand with interpretability. So really, if I'm after anything, it's maybe trust, transparency, interpretability, and the access to more data. So what does that look like? I found four people who are kind of in this space doing stuff, and there's lots of others listed. Omissions are not uh, me trying to insult anyone. It just uh, limits to how many I could cover here. I'm going to talk mostly about Google's research into federated learning and Algorithmia's Danku system, but I'll mention OpenMind and Singularity.net are two others, people in this space trying to bring machine learning into the blockchain. Well, what does that look like? So Algorithmia's idea with this project Danku is that you would post your machine learning problem as a contract. It's designed to run on the Ethereum blockchain. So some buyer says, here's a problem I have. I want you to do a classification problem for me, and I want you to achieve a certain level of accuracy. You can put that onto the blockchain. People can download that, contribute their data, build the machine. If it, the contract insists that the testing data set, the holdout data set, which is not there, is used to verify it. So all the typical tropings of machine learning, testing and training data is included in this. And if the um, person who's doing the machine learning here is able to meet that contract, able to achieve that, let's say, greater than 90% accuracy, then the contract is closed. So in principle, sounds good, right? There are some challenges here that make this a bit infeasible. First and foremost, that anyone who promises you, hey, I'll come in and I'll solve your machine learning problem and I guarantee you this accuracy, that person is a liar. Uh, no one can know how accurate they can make a model or how much they can improve it without starting on the data because it has only a certain amount to do with how smart and clever you are as a machine learning person. Machine learning is just a tool that helps you work with the data you have. So a master carpenter given rotten lumber with a bunch of termites in it is not going to build nice furniture. And the same thing is true of machine learning. So. I, as a person who does machine learning, would not be particularly interested in joining in one of these because I don't know if I can actually satisfy that contract. It's a big risk for me. But there are risk takers in the world, so maybe they're onto something. Maybe I don't have enough vision. However, quoting their own paper, if they were to do the, uh, some process on the famous MNIST data set, that's the handwritten character recognition data set that I gave you an example of earlier, it would cost about $300,000 to uh, come up with that model. So I've built models on MNIST, and I also bought a house. I couldn't have done both if I was doing it on the Ethereum blockchain. So that is quite an expensive trade-off. I think that's a non-starter. Now, certainly these people might keep working on it, and I know there's ways where we're trying to do things where you put a token in the blockchain and the storage is elsewhere. There's work in this space, but it's early days, and I myself am not particularly hopeful. One of their other incentives they think is cool is that, well, this kind of democratized what mining means. Someone who has a bank of GPUs and wants to do some mining, they could mine for Bitcoin or they could mine for uh, models that are out there. So you have two opportunities to do useful things with your uh, hardware. However, the mining is very predictable in a statistical way. You can pretty much figure out how much money you're going to make from the hardware you have. And you'll be small margin of error that's quite predictable. 
the data science machine learning stuff doesn't have that same predictability. The amount of variance in from model to model and contract to contract is really unpredictable. So I don't think this is a real incentive. If I owned a fleet of GPU machines, I'd stay mining Bitcoin. I wouldn't participate in these products. Uh, it would be a more stable business and probably a more profitable run. But I could be wrong. So the implementation, I've had a lot of gloom and doom here as to why maybe blockchain is irrelevant for ML. I am excited though about federated learning and this comes out of a prototype that Google has live right now. The idea of federated learning is that you pass the model you have to an end user, in this case all of us with our phones, or I think maybe only Android phones here. You have user data on it and that user data is very valuable to Google, but we don't want to give it to them. But we can let their software run locally, improve the model they have, and then send back not the full model and not the original training data, but what the improvements were to the model are. So a machine learning model can be serialized in some way. Usually it's just a set of parameters, uh, the, you know, a vector of weights, something along those lines. And with the training you've done locally, you've updated those weights. Those can be pushed back to Google. Now, in the same way I told you earlier, a machine learning model can be stolen from the cloud, someone could reverse engineer, well, what training data would have led to the improvement you sent me? So you're not as anonymous as people might like. However, Google says, as soon as you send your data back, we immediately average it. And that averaging does, does totally anonymize you. It destroys whatever identity you had in there. And it kind of puts all the mush of training data into a pile. So that is a good step if you trust that Google will immediately do that averaging process. And I think a lot of people would if there's one company that's trustworthy, Google's probably on the list, but federated learning could be deployed elsewhere at places we wouldn't necessarily have the same trust for. I do think this is really cool though. Their implementation that's live is basically with this, I think it's called like the G-Bar or something. It's their uh, self or recommended typing and also kind of suggests to you things that you might be looking for that is trying to learn context. So for example, if I was at home and I searched for restaurants, maybe I, you know, it knows my history. I go to um, you know, Michelin star restaurants. I'm probably planning something. It sees my anniversary coming up, does all these fancy things and says, hey, let's take you to a site where you can search menus and book. That's the scenario when I'm in my living room. Other than that, I'm driving down the street and I'm the passenger and I'm looking at restaurants. Location is tremendously important to me there and immediacy, whether it's open or not. Different context, different recommendation would be appropriate. And Google would like to know that without having to basically have all of your data shipped off to the cloud. So they do the training locally. They try and learn the context by which your searches are valid and they send back only the pieces that update that are better than the model they already have. It's a neat idea. We should pay more attention to it in terms of scrutiny and privacy and what the possible like hacks are here, but this is very exciting stuff. So is there a future where ML is doing things in the blockchain? There are, it's possible, but there are some challenges and issues. The use cases are not obvious. The example from Danku tells us that the overhead and the cost of mining and all these sorts of things make it impractical as is today for anyone to really use the Ethereum VM or anything like it. Training offline simply has orders of magnitude cheaper costs, and even though that can maybe be improved with time, uh, it seems like such a ceiling. I don't know that we're ever going to meet in the middle there. I do think there are some practical cases, uh, probably some very interesting corner cases that 
this is perfect for. I really like that medical one. I would love to be contributing a lot of health data to researchers if I could trust, if they wanted it for starters, and then if I could trust that it was not being saved or labeled as me or someone else is gonna get access to it. And I know very well that those aren't commitments anyone can give me today. Machine learning generally requires some finesse, not a sledgehammer. This idea that we'll train models on encrypted data and they'll just work without knowing what the data is gonna look like, that can work in some situations, but in general, a lot of the novel machine learning problems that people work on require a lot of finesse. You have to get to know the data. There's this famous quote that data scientists spend 80% of their time cleaning the data. And while that might be true and it sounds negative, you're also getting to know the data at the same time and you're generating the insights required to build a good model. That goes away if everything's encrypted. So there's some large class of interesting problems that can't be solved in this way, but certainly a class of problems that can. Homomorphic encryption is a necessary step. It's very slow and it's not clear that we'll ever have true full homomorphic encryption. So that could be a full stop. There's a lot of other overheads, just the delays in uh, blocks being updated, uh, not getting into chains, these sorts of anomalies and just issues with the blockchain that are uh, pervasive elsewhere that'll probably get solved with time. Any machine learning on that system is gonna suffer the same things until solutions arrive. You know, the transaction delays and, and those sort of other known issues that come up, those will hurt model training. And today, model training can be a very slow process. Machine learning people don't want slower process. So that puts a little bit of a challenge on it. So I think there's hope and interesting things, but in corner cases mostly, the opportunities I really see is in more federated data. I love the idea of deploying the model, someone running it locally, and maybe even approving what changes they're willing to send back, and that we can all kind of globally in this distributed fashion make improvements to a model we all benefit from. I also think there's some neat stuff with what I would call data stewardship. Like I said, I'd be weary to give my data to some hospital, even though I want to, because I don't know who else is gonna get a hold of it. But what if there was a middleman I trusted, and they just managed my requests, and they they took the code from the hospital and they took my data and they ran it and they were Im as impartial to it as Amazon is impartial to what I store in S3. If, if I could trust that someone was a steward of my data in that way, I think it could advance this idea of federated learning. And last but not least, I've really undersold the ability to have data provenance via the blockchain, to track where data came from, who has seen it, where, what was done with it. There are some neat opportunities there that I haven't seen too much research on. Um, so. That's kind of my take on where we've come from, where we might be going, and uh, machine learning, and how it's gonna relate to the blockchain, if and, or maybe. And uh, if you like more of me, that's me on Twitter. We do a weekly show all about, as Jeff said, machine learning and stuff. So, can do questions, or we can kind of move on. Yeah, let's do questions. Cool. I'm gonna start off. So the first, so, so there is some ways of solving that hospital problem that you were talking about today, at where you do that K-anonymity, where, if I want to give my data set to a hospital and I've got a bunch of friends that also want to give their data to the hospital, we all want to yeah. do that and we can do that if we can anonymize the name field and anonymize the other fields of that data to make it sufficiently anonymous so that the only thing that is not anonymous is like our gender, our age, and you know whether or not we have some type of leukemia, right? yeah. or whether we develop some type of leukemia, so that you can you can start to develop co correlations 
there. The problem is, and this happened with the Netflix Prize, the whole Netflix public data set thing where people took this public data set and they found, you know, they, they, they made their own algorithms around it and they found what, you know, they found a better model for recommending movies. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate side effect of that was that the data set got de-anonymized because people cross-referenced it with what would like IMDb something like that, yeah. IMDb data. Very clever so idea. The IMDb public accounts got mapped to private Netflix data. Yeah. And and then so people found out about it. So my long-winded way of asking, how well developed is that field of K anonymity? It's developed enough that the experts will probably tell you there's no such thing as anonymity in that respect. There are just techniques that get us a little bit closer. Even my example of like the drunk driver thing, that's very anonymous, but there's something you could do to back into that in the same way people backed into IMDB. That was just a clever isomorphic mapping kind of thing. There's techniques I've seen where on facial recognition algorithms, this one guy was able to actually recover some original faces that were trained on it by doing an adversarial approach. Information is weird and it gets embedded in things in unexpected ways. And what might seem anonymous is only anonymous until a very clever person figures out how to make uh, the uh, reverse direction of that function. So I've heard a little bit about uh, differential privacy as a way mm -hmm. to safeguard information that you can do queries on uh, a data set and get data on the aggregate, but when you try and get any data on an individual, there's too much noise to get anything valuable. Was that kind of related to the encryption that you were talking about, or is that a separate kind of path? It's a related idea. I left it out just in terms of time. That's sort of Facebook has been pushing that label. Google has the similar idea in federated learning. So it's a nice concept and it works to a point. If you average out data, you put a big pool of people and you stir them all up, that does contribute a great deal of anonymization. Aggregates hide things, but they don't perfectly guarantee that they've given you privacy. They've given you what looks an awful lot like privacy and may in many cases be so, but there's no proof that says they're for sure private, that there can't be a very clever person that comes along and figures out how to sync it to IMDB, or you know, there's some correlation they can reverse out. So for example, if you know, maybe I can only make queries in aggregate, but if I make a bunch of them in different partitions of the data, now I can kind of divide and conquer. And you're never gonna get, you know, it's never gonna be the perfect thing like the CSI enhance where you take this tiny image and you see somebody's fingernails. But they actually are working on that, and it's, it's a little bit less science fiction. It's never going to be perfect, but in that same way that smart things will learn to reconstruct data, there's always clever people who can try and de-anonymize. So you have no guarantees with techniques like that, but those techniques are the best things we know about, so we should be using them. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you all. I'm going to take a quick survey just to kind of calibrate where I should be in this talk. How many people uh, feel they are machine learning expert in the room? How many people use machine learning on a, at all in your job? Some people. A few people. OK. How many people know very little about machine learning, you feel? OK. That calibrates me, I think. Okay, very good. All right, so today I'm going to talk to you about machine learning at Second Spectrum, how we use it to solve problems that we're interested in. I miss, how many people have actually heard of Second Spectrum? A few people? Okay. Did you hear about it through Jeff's podcast? 
could get it in LA. <laughs> okay. That also works. So Second Spectrum is a sports analytics company. Uh, our, our goal is to revolutionize sports through uh, intelligence. That's our, our tagline right here. What does that actually mean? Well, people, we're looking to change the way that people both play and watch sports. If you think about the people that play sports, that includes teams, leagues, individuals as well, of course, but we're, we're more focused on, on teams and, and leagues. And if you look at the people that watch sports, it, we might be able to influence them through the media that, that, that is presented to them or directly to the fans themselves. So those are the areas that we're interested in. Focusing on teams and leagues for a moment, right now we're the, uh, as of this year, this season, we're the official NBA tracking and analytics provider. So we have cameras installed in all 29 NBA stadiums throughout the country right now that are used in all the NBA games, or at least all the ones in those stadiums, to track all the players and the ball throughout the game. We take that data and build things on top of it that we use to make useful tools for teams and for fans. One of the things that we do for teams in particular, so we, we provide a lot of things for teams. We make reports for them, we give them tools to help them rank players in certain categories. You don't know a few other things that, that, that they like. But one of the tools that we provide to teams right now is the ability to ask questions and answer them in ways, you know, who's, what's the most common pick and roll combination that the Golden State Warriors run, and what's the best, what's the most common effective defense against that, for example. At any rate, those are the kind of th things we can ask them, but then on, on top of that, one critical tool that we provide them is the ability to query video. And we do that by indexing the video by the, kind of, by the content of the video, what actually is happening there. So what I'm going to ask you to do here is to watch the video and in your mind, index what you think is actually going, at, going on in this video. Just how would, you, how would you tag it such that it could be found inside of a database? Now, maybe I should preface that by how many basketball fans do we have in the room? All right, a few people. Okay, good. So especially you. There we go. All right. What's going on? The Golden State brought the ball up. They're passing the ball around. Coming to the top of the key. There's a pick set there. Uh, no one's open over there. Okay, throwing off to the left. Hmm. And take a shot. There we go. All right. Okay, now you have in your mind how you might have... So well, I, I mentioned a few things. Maybe you found a few others. Maybe you didn't. This is what a computer might see. Ah, there's a drop screen over there, a whip cut going on in the top, some spacing center of the corner, the kind of lower right setting up, coming off a wide pin. There's uh, another whip cut in the middle, setting spacing, going off ball defense, holding, shooting a jumper, and voila. Okay. How many of those things that I talked about did you know? Not too many. The fact is that I don't know half the things I talked about. <laughs> I really don't know, I don't know what the terms are. Those are things that uh, NBA coaches and their, their staff are interested in, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of those terms. We built a computer that, that can really understand what's going on on the floor, quote unquote understand. I, I use a very uh, anthropomorphic term, I understand quote-unquote, understand what's going on on the floor to the level of what an NBA coach is interested in, okay? And we can then use any of those things to, to index the video, and that's been a really great tool for us, and it's something that teams really like. They used to, and some teams still do have, rooms full of interns that sit around and watch video all day long. And all they do is watch video and cut up interesting things and label them and put them together and provide them to the coaching staff. And that they spend hours and hours and hours just doing this. Now, if you're an intern that likes watching basketball, maybe that's not a bad job. 
In our case, we can do all that in a few seconds. Go on. Oh, one point. Uh, Eric Spolstra, the coach of the Miami Heat, that was his first job was going through all the tapes. So. <laughs> there we go. But I guess these days, you guys, I guess also you can get a kind of a text dump of what happened in that scene, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay. I mean, that's what so our... I guess in some ways the, your system doesn't replace that job. It just it gives those interns a lot more data to work well, okay, we provide tools to the interns that, oh, to the interns or whoever, yeah, yeah. coaching staff, really, at this point, that let them ask queries that, say, for example, I want to know all, uh, a coach wants to know all of the pick and rolls that involve Steph Curry and Harrison Barnes, whatever, uh, some two, two players on there. We have, a, we have a system that you can put those two things in, and it will just pull up all those videos immediately. There's no, no, you don't need to watch through the whole game. We can give you all that video for the whole season as of right now. And so, I mean, one example is this one right here, where you know I, I did a query where I said, "Give me all of the passes over 30 feet that ended with a, lo a lob." Now, if you ask anyone else to do this, there's no data out there that really has this. We, we kind of have we we're, we're, the data is kind of solid within our within us right now. You know, we're not the only ones that have it, but it's rare that you have. The, uh, the, the length of a pass in the data, we have all that. It's rare that you can actually sequence these things and ask the kind of question and produce this video. Now, this one's obviously not something a coach would really be interested in. It's more interesting for someone like you or me to actually watch the, the lobs and the jams. But coaches can ask very similar questions and get answers pretty much immediately. Or they'll ask, most likely it's the coach, not the coach themselves, but someone on their staff that can answer, ask those questions. And the interns are, you know, they're still there, but they're doing other things now. All right. So going on to media and fans, I, I could talk a little bit about that, but I'm just going to let you watch a video. And then I, I, will, I will actually get into actually the machine learning stuff in a moment, but this is a, just one last spiel, and then we'll actually talk more about the algorithms and stuff that we use. How's air going to affect basketball? So some of the things that you'll see in actually in this video, if it, well, you'll see in the video at the very least, and you may actually hear in the video, are, are some of the ways that we are hoping to affect the fan experience. Uh, I can actually just talk over this if I need to. All right, we'll do that. So I'm not as uh, eloquent as our, our CEO is at talking over this thing, but generally speaking, when, when, when you're watching a basketball game right now, for example, or any kind of sports match, you are given, you, everyone watches the same thing. You're watching it on ESPN, you're watching, or, or, or some uh, Fox Sports or some local network, and you're watching what they want you to show. And that's fine, you know, up to a, up to a certain point, that's, that's great. What if I want to do a little more? I want to know what's going on in the game. I want to be able to get a little more information about what's actually happening. You know, I might want some statistics while the game's going on. What's the likelihood of certain things happening? I might want to track my, my fantasy team again, see, what, uh, see what's going on there. How many, uh, maybe I have a new player that I'm interested in watching. Maybe I want to watch my kids and I, you know, I, I want something fun on the screen. These are the kinds of things that we can start to do once we have tracking data and once we actually understand what's going on inside the game. And it gives a, a lot of possibilities for, for personalization, that suddenly everyone can watch the game in the way that they want to watch it. You can get highlights uh, in ways that you weren't able to get before. And we can provide all that with the, with the tools that we're doing right now. And that's a rough estimate of what was being said in the actual video. <laughs> And here we go. So, so that's really those two things, you know, working with teams and providing them with tools and ways of preparing for games are, are the kind, are, and then trying to provide 
an experience for users that allows them to get an have an individual experience, their own personalized experience for watching uh, a basketball game or, or some other kind of sport, are really the, the targets. These are the things that we're working on right now. And the, the, the thing about that is that it's all driven by uh, machine learning. So our, our tagline is revolutionize it to, we want to revolutionize sports through intelligence. Let's actually get into some of the intelligence, at least at a high level. Our technology stack. Uh, starting at the bottom, we work on in, in all these areas. We start with uh, player tracking. So I mentioned already that we have uh, cameras set up in all the stadiums. We also have a, a few college stadiums and a number of football, uh, sorry, football, soccer fields, pitches, whatever. Yeah, for soccer stadiums as well, where we have uh, cameras set up to, to track the action that's going on right now. If all you had is player tracks, that isn't very useful. And in the early days, the early days of tracking, which was only a few years ago, the NBA, that's pretty much what they were given. They were given a pile of XYZ, XY coordinates for their players and XYZ for the ball and said, okay, maybe a few things like a shot happened here, something else happened here, and that's all you get. That's not that, in, not that interesting, not that useful. Okay, not yet anyway. One of the things where we really made our mark initially was in adding the semantics layer, the, the stuff that I started talking over the video for before, where we went add a lot of information about what's actually happening on there, and that lets us, do, that lets us move forward into other places. That, that, that's what allows us to make it useful for teams and coaches, and what allows us to build these video augmentations and streaming platforms and, and, and make, make the data actually useful for either teams or, or for consumers. And so along the way, we've built up uh, competencies in various areas. So we have a computer vision and machine learning, which are the two things I'll really focus on after this. Some amount of AI, which is for in story generation, uh, mostly this is targeted at the consumer applications. How do we take this data and present it, again, in, in ways that are, is useful for telling a story to make it interesting for, for users? When we're generating the uh, augmented reality, we need to have some computer vision and, and ways of projecting that information onto uh, the screen. And finally, we're working largely without vendors, but developing our own competency in, in streaming, video streaming. So focusing on player tracking for a moment. For a moment, no, we start with the stadium. So we have cameras set up in, in uh, sta stadiums. And our pipeline looks something like this. The raw video comes in from cameras. We're using computer vision IP cameras. Mostly those, have, up until recently, those have mostly been used for industrial applications. but. They work pretty well for our application as well. So those are trained over the uh, court. We take and encode the video, uh, chunk it up, and send it up into the cloud, S3 in our case, although it's nothing, nothing that restricts it to that. As the data is uploaded, we, send, we use RabbitMQ in most of our pipeline, actually, right now. Something very, very simple messaging is all we need at this point. And send a message saying, OK, this, this is now available. This uh, uh, data is now available. Start processing it. Messages get sent over to our CV tracking pipeline, which I'll go into a little, bit, a little bit more detail in a moment. And it says, OK, start processing this data. CV pipeline reads video and data from, uh, from S3 and writes back results. And the whole pipeline kind of works this way in a very modular way. We get, uh, that repeats over and over again, we get player and ball tracks are made available at this point about 75 seconds after they appear. So it still takes a little bit of time. It's not close to, not, not quite real time yet. That was as of a little, as of recently, I don't know why the lights are on. <laughs> as, uh, and, you know, that 
has actually been coming down slowly. One of, one of, the, one of the things that we're really trying to do is, is make this as real time as possible. A couple of months ago, that was at two, or th two to three minutes. Uh, now we're down to 75 seconds, and we're really shooting to get it down to just a few seconds. That's changing the way we're thinking about the problem, trying to move into hardware. We've been talking about exploring FPGAs or things like that. But anyway, that's kind of the direction that we're heading right now. But there's still, even, even within the current framework, there's still some work that we can do to make it faster than it is right now. The tracking itself, the pipeline is entirely written in Python and C++. Python's most, as, as with many applications, Python's the wrapper and C++, the, most of the core algorithms are written in C++, some on the GPU. We do use OpenCV, which is a very common computer vision uh, library, if you're not familiar with it. And we also use TensorFlow, which is, again, a very common machine learning framework, if you're not familiar with it. At the same time, about 90% of the algorithms that we use are actually, were actually developed by us. And it's not that we're doing, you know, some things that we're doing are really kind of unique, I think. You know, a few, there's a few things, tips and tricks and things that we have the competency, we have the ability to do to make, uh, you know, to make our code really fast. And a few tricks that aren't published anywhere as far as we know that, that actually help us do things. At the same time, you know, just being able to even take relatively common algorithms and speed them up, in a way, speed them up on our own, just having, having control of, of the source code there gives us a lot of flexibility in what we do. And, and the point is we have, we have that capability right now, which is it's a, it's an important, it's important to us. The algorithms that we, if we take the uh, pipeline and break it down just a little bit, we have a bunch of modular CD, CV algorithms. We have algorithms for player detection and tracking, player identification, of course, ball detection and tracking, and then implicit in all this is really the ability to fuse inputs from multiple cameras. You know, we have, you kind of need to do that. You want to be able to find locations, you need to be able to triangulate. You know, this is machine learning, okay? This is the same thing everyone else does. You collect a bunch of data, you split your data up, you train it on some of it, and you evaluate it on the rest. The data collection part is labor-intensive, but it's something that we've taken the time to actually do. We're gonna explore with the computer, in the computer vision area. The, we look at that, we look at the areas that, where we're having problems, you know? We have tools that say, okay, this is, this is where you got right, this is where you got wrong. I can go right to the, right to the video there and say, what, what actually happened here? What was going on here? Oh, there was an extra shadow over here. Oh, he stepped out of bounds. Oh, his head looks like a ball. Happens. <laughs> and we repeat, trying new things. We're very data-driven, and we're very, uh, we have a, a, a good testing infrastructure set up where with every change that we make to the computer vision code, and, with, and, and at the very least also every week, we rerun all of our testing to, uh, our test games to see what effect any changes that make have, has have had on our results. Have they made it better? Have they made it worse for some reason? If they made it worse, let's figure out what's going on. Most, in most cases, it's either staying the same or it's, it's improving, and we're always going through that. And, and you know, the first, our first goal was to make it as accurate as possible, and right now, yeah, our accuracy is quite high, 98-ish percent accuracy or more, depending on the stadium, the game, the, the, uh, so on and so forth which is good enough for the rest of our tasks, and it, it, gets the, it gets the job done right, quite well. And now we're focusing a lot more on making it faster. And when, when it's done right, this is kind of what it looks like. Obviously, if you're on the podcast, you can't see this, but <laughs> you can see the ball going in there. It's moving a little faster than real time. We do the same thing in soccer. It's essentially the same pipeline for soccer, and essentially it's much, much of the same code as well. And we can do the same thing with hockey. And we can do the same, same thing on, on your back basketball court if you happen to have multiple cameras set up around your court. <laughs>
which we did for that exercise. Uh, there was, uh, as an aside, our CEO did give a, a TED Talk, and that video was actually one that was used, was prepared for, and is used in the, in the TED Talk, uh, the last one. Examples of some, uh, some issues that we've run across. So we, one of the biggest things, you know, a lot of the work that we do, you know, if you look in the literature for tracking, for people tracking, uh, you're not going to find much in the area in the, for sports, at least when we were looking at this a couple of years ago, when I last time I looked, it was there's not much for sports. There's a lot of things for pedestrian tracking. And in pedestrian tracking, it's great. Everyone kind of looks a little different most of the time. Okay? On, a, on a basketball court, everyone looks alike. Well, you know, there's some taller, some shorter, some darker, some lighter, but everyone really, they're all wearing the same uniform. Just, just from that, you know, there's ways of distinguishing them, but at a first pass, everyone looks like, and it's actually, early on, especially in the development of our system, it was actually very common that we would swap players back and forth just as they, on the same team, just as they crossed in one another, in front of one another. And so that was, that was one of the biggest problems. You know, at this point, that hasn't been a problem as much anymore. We've improved our algorithms enough, but that was uh, certainly a big thing. Players or balls being included or missing is a common problem. You get a bunch of people under a basket waiting for a, uh, waiting for a basketball, both the ball and the various players, it's hard to actually distinguish them from one another. Bench players celebrating and jumping onto the court uh, happens on occasion, and you know, we start tracking them along with the players and realize, oh, wait a second, they're not supposed to be in the game right now. Lighting and reflections at various times have been problems. You know, again, these are all, all things that we've mostly addressed and still occasionally crop up. Player heads being tracked as a ball. <laughs> eh, well, I, I heard that this was actually, for this particular game, that his head was tracked as the ball most of the game, unfortunately. <laughs> it happens, you know, it's pretty rare these days. We, we actually do a really good job overall. And we have ways of, of correcting that as we go along. Um, that's now a negative training sample. So moving on, that's our player tracking. Obviously, we need, we need a little bit more than that. And I've, I've already hinted at you that we, will, uh, that we have a little bit more than that. So player and ball tracks, then they get passed on to our, what we call our semantics pipeline. Now, semantics, I mean, it, it's kind of a big fancy word. It, really, what we're doing is labeling video or tagging it or, or any number of other things that you might want to say along the way there. Uh, did a pass just happen here? What kind of pass happened? I, I used the simple names in this diagram. You saw the more complicated names. There are at least 14 different varieties of pick and roll that we recognize to varying degrees of accuracy. Some of them are very similar to one another. Coaches and the teams don't mind too much if, if the two varieties of pick and roll are very similar and we confuse one for the other, they say, okay, that's fine, it's not a big deal, okay? This is the feedback that we get from teams that we uh, work with. But we, we've, we spend a lot of time interacting with the teams and, and making these as, as useful as possible. When we were, so the stack, sorry, the stack that we work with is almost entirely written in Python. This is. But we use a lot of libraries that are written in other things. Scikit-learn is a pretty common machine learning framework that's out there. We use a lot of things from there. We use Keras and TensorFlow. Again, frameworks that I've, I mentioned TensorFlow as a framework. Keras is a, a I think we actually, I take that back. We actually use Keras in our OpenCV pipeline as well. I had forgotten that. It's just a, it's, it's a meta framework. It, it makes things easier, uh, TensorFlow a little easier to use. And, and makes it generic because you can have, in theory, you can swap out the backend. In practice, I don't know how easy this really is, but uh, in theory, you can swap out TensorFlow for some other deep learning framework or things like that. But again, one of the things that 
that we've been able to do and has really been really important for the tasks that we work on are uh, is we spend a lot of time with the problems itself. We take whatever knowledge we have of basketball and incorporate those into the algorithms. And often that what that means is doing feature generation, saying, I understand what uh, this particular pick and roll happens to mean. I'm going to make it easy for the machine learning algorithm to do that by engineering some features that make it, that make it possible for possible first and then easy for the machine learning algorithm to learn what's actually going on uh, there. So there weren't a lot of people very familiar with uh, machine learning in the audience here, so I'll have to decode some of these, these uh, names perhaps. We use a lot, a lot of different models in our algorithms depending on what we're trying to do, depending on if it's working with soccer or basketball, depending on if we're, if we're interested in uh, a sequence of events that are happening or just looking at a very short, small slice of data. And so we, we very commonly use support vector machines. That's the first SVM up there, uh, and random forests, which are both, uh, each of which has their strengths and, and weaknesses. For sequential data, we use uh, both hidden Markov models and conditional random fields. There are libraries for all these things. So if, even if you don't know how to code them up yourself, you can find libraries that will do this, or you can code them up yourself. And in some cases, we've done both. And then we use neural networks for various parts of this, sometimes in combination with one another. Same kind of thing for training data. And again, because I, 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 I've, I've kind of talked about this re, uh, twice already now, but uh, we spend a lot of time, especially early on, and, but even, even now, consulting with teams. Okay? They have a new marking. They have a new something else that, they want to, that we don't quite provide them with yet that, that they want us to provide. Okay, they come with a request. We say, okay, let's see what we can do. We go, we find a bunch of examples of it, what we think are examples, or maybe the team's already provide some of those examples. We see how well we can find those. And then we go and test them. We say, okay, these are everything we found. How do we do? What do you, what do you think? Is this useful to you? Et cetera. They come back with some... Uh, some feedback, you know, that, that's a relatively slow loop. We do, we do a lot of iteration on our own just to find what we can. Some of the things that they found are pretty esoteric. They might happen once or twice a game. Those are hard, honestly. It's hard to train something that does that, but we've spent a lot of time and we do those to varying degrees of success. And, well, as before, blather, rinse, repeat. Do it again. Collect more data. Consult again. And we end up with Something that, with again, this is the same video as before, which uh, shows all of the, the the various actions that are going on on the court in that video. And we do this for every single NBA game, minus the ones that are overseas that we don't, where we don't have cameras, all throughout the season. We just concluded over a th uh, the, this season tracking and providing this data for, gosh, over a thousand games. What's that number that's next to some of the circles? Good. Thank you for asking that. Uh, that's actually our model for shot probability. You know, there's no ground truth for that, but you can tell when just from the data you can extract whether sh how frequently shots are made from that place on the floor using different, depending on the configuration of the players or things like that. Is that, is that per player? Because like... Golden State or whatever, those guys can just seem to knock them down. Right. So we have models that are both generic, which are useful for players that don't play very often, and player-specific models for players that play often enough. Steph Curry model. Exactly. We do, we do have a Steph Curry probability, which is really rather high. Yes. Yes, we do. And sorry for asking Yes, please. a little bit question, but for of all the noise that you could have added to this very clean picture, why did you add shot probability of those people. Those are the people that were open at that particular time, perhaps? No, I'm just saying you could have added other stats, right? Like 
This, this is the one that's actually the most easily interpretable. I mean, there's all kinds of other stats that we can do. We can do a passing probability, but yeah, kind of who really cares about that, really? Even on the teams, this is, we want to know, really, teams are interested in scoring. This is, this is, a ba this is basketball. We want to know how, how, what kind of quality, what's the quality of the shots that, that players are actually doing. We have models that, that do that. Because they could figure maybe they put put another a second defender on the guy outside the line. And as you do that, the shot probability changes if you add a second defender. Well, Steph Curry's going to knock it down anyway, don't block. <laughs> That's also quite possible. Uh, but, you know, at, at that point, someone else is open and their shot probability yeah. is higher. And, and for a team like Golden State, for example, which is a very good basketball team, just passing it to the player is actually maybe the better option in that case. So it's, uh, yeah. So, that's the general overview of what we do in machine learning and computer vision at our company. Now, just to be clear, at our company right now, we have probably 50 or 60 engineers or so. Only about 20 to 30% of them are in machine learning and computer vision. Computer vision. We have uh, a lot of full stack engineers, people doing UI, UX, for infrastructure and DevOps, and we're always looking for good people. So if you or if you know people who are looking for uh, jobs, do feel free to reach out and, 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 and contact us. Let, us. let us know what's going on. You can send an uh, email to work at Second Spectrum, or you can check out our website for the kind of things that we're looking for. And I will end with, and it's really kind of too bad you can't see the, you hear the, hear the audio for this. It's actually kind of fun. but. These are some of the things that we do. And it, you know, up until now, almost everything's been basketball, but uh, it does actually, as a backdrop, it actually works pretty well for asking questions. We're going to stick with that. We do work in soccer. Maybe just to add to that, uh, the, the soccer is, I think, a, it's a concept video, but taking, used based off real data. But then we've also worked with uh, Sky Sports in Europe, the kind of the ESPN of Europe, and provided uh, videos for them to use in their broadcast. We've worked with ESPN here, especially in basketball, and continue to do so to provide them with uh, various things. Uh, we've done some work in football. Nothing that's gone on the air at this point yet, but these are the kinds of stats and stuff that we've been able to get from the data that we've had access to there. And then the, the ones at the bottom are basketball. These are kind of the more fun things that, that either we can do or, 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 or have uh, ambitions to, to do. Uh, the one on the lower right is actually, a, a, it's not exactly the same these days. That's a little bit of an older video, but we actually have a consumer app that we're developing that it doesn't do exactly those things, but it, the ideas are the same, that you can take the data that you have right now and provide more information. I, I showed some of that in some earlier videos as well. Any questions? Yeah. Uh, how do you guys deal with like a confidence interval, right? Because you, you have that shock probability, but depending on how confident you want to be, do you always go for like 95% or something? How do we deal with confidence intervals? The answer is we really don't right now. You know, the model, we take a measure of how close we are. You know, but the answer is we don't. We actually don't do that right now. We do set a, a minimum for the number of shots you had to have taken from a particular part of the floor, or we don't even bother trying to calculate it. Uh, once you're above a threshold for either total number of shots or a, or a threshold for shots in that particular situation, then we can start doing something. And yeah, I, I, I don't know what the confidence interval is or what the, what the actual cutoff is. I haven't seen that part of the code, but I know that that's, that's kind of what we do. If you have... Uh, you know, someone who only dunks the ball, DeAndre Jordan works, is still on the Clippers. He's the only Clipper that's in those videos that's still left on the Clippers right now. We have no way of calculating a shot probability for him beyond 10 feet away, maybe even five feet away, <laughs> okay? Because he doesn't, doesn't take shots out there. 
uh, things like that. You know, we can calculate it, but it, it's meaningless. So uh, the answer is, yeah, I guess, I guess the answer is that we deal with it by not calculating it when we don't have enough data. Other questions? Yeah? Uh, you mentioned that you have an ability to query videos. So what does it mean? You actually have an API, you have some kind of DSL? Good. So right now, when I say... Oh, sorry, good. The question was, we have an ability to query videos. How do we actually provide that? So this is something that's provided to teams and to places like ESPN or, or other uh, media outlets right now. And it's really just done through a web interface. So we actually control the, the query entirely on the back end. Uh, they, they do it through some, a web interface where they specify the kinds of things that they're looking for. And we take that, turn that into a query into our system, go get the data associated with that, and then those have links to, those are the data that we have are all aligned into the video using the techniques that I just told, I talked about. You mentioned developing some in-house algorithms. Um, can you talk more about the motivation for that over some of like the mature things like OpenCV and SKLearn that you also use? Okay. The question was, what was the motivation for developing in-house algorithms as opposed to simply using OpenCV or SKLearn or things like that? So. Part of the motivation there is just the having the ability to incorporate domain-specific knowledge into those algorithms. You know, we know exactly. I mean, let's see. What can I? What, uh, what's a good example of that? So, one example I talked a little earlier about feature engineering. That in in our case, we have a lot of people that work for the company who know a lot about basketball, and we can also draw on the knowledge uh, of teams and. We draw a lot on the knowledge of teams in order to, to generate the features for that. You know, that, that's, that's just feature engineering. That doesn't, that doesn't change the model itself. So the, the, the fundamental model is still the same. It's just, it's just what features you have going in. Regarding other reasons for doing that, we found in some cases that the, the open source models are complete, but they're not very fast. And this gives us, you know, even if they're open source, we could, in theory, take their source, figure out what it's doing, try and make it faster. And we've done that at times. You know, I've taken some open source projects and added parallelization to them. And it speeded them up a little bit. And then we threw that code away because we, we found something a little better. You know, that's fine. It was, it was good work at the time to do. And we found, we found a better algorithm or developed a better algorithm on our own. In many cases, uh, it just, it, it, we we're familiar with the code base then. We can actually go in and modify it and, and do a, change, the, change it in ways that, that's useful. And I guess most importantly, we have the expertise in-house to do it, so why not do that? Uh, let's take advantage of some of the people that we have who are really good at coding some of this stuff up. I, I, I won't go into too many details, but for example, even in computer vision, we know we're looking at a basketball court. We can use that. We know about the dimensions of the court or other things like that. We can use that knowledge to make our algorithms simpler and faster, saying we know we're not going to see a generic something that's other than this court, so I know the court I'm looking at right now. That's, that, makes my, that, that can make my life a little easier. And I can, you know, I might not change the code to that, but I can code, I, can, I, I won't change the code for every court, but I'll change the code to take into account the fact that I have a court and I know what that court looks like. Things like that. Wow.